0: Support for True Crime Fan Club is brought to you by Incipio. Incipio offers legendary protection for all of your devices, from phones to AirPods to tablets. They obsess over their tech to protect yours. As you know, the holiday season is upon us, so Incipio Organic Core Clear and Duo for MagSafe are the perfect holiday gifts if you're gifting somebody a new phone, tablet, or AirPods. Did you know that every 12 Organic Core cases reduces one pound of plastic from landfill waste? That's amazing and a great way to make a difference with a gift for a loved one. Just know your phone will be protected from drops as high as 14 feet. Best of all, all Organic Core Clear cases are also wireless charging compatible. And there's a lifetime warranty, so they've got you covered. So what do you get? You get 20% off and free shipping within the U.S. with code TCFC at Incipio.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TCFC at Incipio.com. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Since 1976, when the death penalty was reinstated in the United States, 17 women have been executed. The two women discussed in today's episode have the distinction of being the oldest women executed in the country. The women had far different motives for murder, and both women enlisted family members to assist them with their dirty deeds. Okay, on to the show. Women make up a very small percentage of capital cases in the United States, accounting for 2% of death row inmates. Since 1632, there have been 576 documented cases of women executed in the U.S. Most homicides committed by female suspects are domestic homicides and viewed as crimes of passion, since many are committed without premeditation and in the heat of the moment. When women are on trial for murder, prosecutors often try to paint them as deviant, breaking societal and gender norms. Many of the women executed or on death row were convicted of heinous crimes, such as kidnapping and killing children or for torturing their victims. Other women were convicted and sentenced to death because of the number of victims whether it was multiple husbands, their children, parents, or outsiders. On August 6, 1983, around 10 o'clock p.m., Lil Smith, the owner of the Redwood Beach Marina, was notified by several customers of an empty boat floating near the marina. The marina was on Cedar Creek Lake in Texas, located between the communities of Kemp and Seven Points. Two of Lil's customers found the boat, and found a fishing license inside, issued to Jimmy Don Beats. The Coast Guard and Parks and Wildlife were notified, and sent several personnel to the marina to begin investigating. They began by looking in the phone book for a listing for Jimmy Don Beats, and made contact with Betty Lou Beats. Betty went to the marina and identified the boat and license as her husband's. However, high winds made a nighttime search dangerous, so the responding agencies agreed to begin searching for the missing fishermen in the morning. On August 7, 1983, Johnny Marr, a deputy with the Henderson County Sheriff's Department, and Hugh DeWoody, chief of the Payne Spring Fire Department, went to the Beats residence and made contact with Betty Lou Beets. Betty told the men that Jimmy had gone fishing the night before, even though he had been having trouble with his boat. She stated he had not returned since she went to the marina the night before. The deputy told Betty Lou that his body would likely be discovered that day, since there was a boat race being held on the lake. The deputy told Betty Lou that his body would likely be discovered that day, since there was a boat race being held on the lake. Later, Betty Lou would deny they visited her residence that day. A three-week intensive search began for Jimmy Don's body. The search party consisted of members of the Dallas Fire Department, Jimmy Don's employer for almost 30 years. The Coast Guard, the Henderson County Sheriff's Department, and many volunteers from the community took part in the searches. But Jimmy Don's body was not recovered. A fire department chaplain visited with Betty Lou several times over the three weeks of searches. She asked him if he knew of any insurance policies on Jimmy Don, and if he knew of any pension benefits she might receive. The chaplain made inquiries and returned to tell Betty Lou that there would be an approximate payout of $110,000 in life insurance and that she would be entitled to receive $1,200 $1,200 each month from Jimmy Don's pension. Because there was no body, Betty Lou would have to wait seven years to collect. However, Betty Lou's last attorney claimed that she did not know she would receive the benefits until her first attorney, hired for a fire claim, found out she would get an insurance payout and pension benefits. Whether she killed Jimmy Don for money or not, was an important factor in whether she would receive capital punishment. Whether she killed Jimmy Don for money or not was an important factor in whether she would receive a capital punishment. Jamie Beats, Jimmy Don's sons from a previous marriage, was convinced Betty Lou had something to do with his father's death. At the time of Jimmy Don's death, father and son were estranged, which Jamie blamed on his stepmother. He had first met Betty Lou in the summer of 1982 and took an instant dislike to her. He told his father he thought she was manipulative. His father was furious and told Jamie he loved her and that they were planning on getting married. Shortly after Jimmy Don and Betty Lou were married, Jimmy Don asked Jamie to come to Betty Lou's mobile home, where he had been living since before they married. Jimmy Don had a three-bedroom lake house in a subdivision of Glen Oaks, where he was letting Jamie and his family live. When Jamie came over, Jimmy Don said Jamie and his family could continue to live in the house, but he only wanted to see him in order to see his grandkids. He explained that Betty Lou said he should sever his financial support to Jamie. Shortly after Christmas 1982, While Jamie and his family were visiting extended family, the lake house burned down, destroying all of the family's possessions. In early 1983, Jimmy Don gave Jamie $850 for the items that were destroyed. According to Jamie, Betty Lou had told Jimmy Don that he needed to keep the rest of the insurance payout as payment for the money Jamie owed his father. This added to Jamie's intense dislike of Betty Lou, which ultimately created a fervor in him to prove she had something to do with his father's disappearance. A month after his father disappeared, Jamie moved some belongings back into the newly rebuilt lake house and began driving back and forth between his family home in Dallas and the lake house. Unfortunately, he returned to Dallas in late October to find a note from his wife. She had left him. After that, he and Betty Lou launched into a full blown war for the lake house. One time, Betty Lou threw his clothes out of the house. He retaliated and changed the locks. She tried to sell the house and he called the title company to block the sale. In January 1984, he went to work at the Western Club, a nightclub near Cedar Creek Lake. His sole purpose for working at the nightclub. Was to obtain lakeside gossip in the hope something might lead to Betty Lou's arrest. The best piece of information he received was that her fourth husband had also disappeared. However, shortly after that, a new waitress started at the club. It was Betty Lou Beats. He confronted her, telling her he was going to get to the bottom of it. That night, He heard something outside the lake house and found a stick, wrapped with a gas-soaked rag, in front of his truck. He chased two men through the subdivision but lost them. The next day, Jamie was fired from the Western Club. The manager was a friend of Betty Lou's. Jamie continued his pursuit of justice, but then in the early summer, fire struck the lake house again. The fire originated in the master bedroom, where some of his father's files had been soaked in coal oil, then lit. There were reports Betty Lou was seen entering and leaving the house, but there was not enough evidence to press charges. In January 1985, Jamie was in a serious accident that left him with a cast on his leg from the ankle to the thigh for five months. By the time he was mobile again, Betty Lou was finally under suspicion. In the spring of 1985, an investigator with the sheriff's office received credible information that questioned Jimmy Don's disappearance. Based on this information, Betty Lou was arrested on June 8, 1985. After her arrest, her home and property were searched, and the remains of Jimmy Don Beats and Doyle Wayne Baker another one of Betty Lou's husbands, were found. Jimmy Don was found under a wishing well in the front yard, and Doyle's remains were found under a storage shed in the backyard. Two bullets were found in Jimmy Don's remains, one in his skull and one in the torso region. Three bullets were found in Doyle's remains. Betty Lou's son, Robbie, later testified regarding his involvement in Jimmy Don's murder. He said that on August 6, 1983, his mother told him to leave the residence because she was going to shoot Jimmy Don. He left for around two hours and returned home to assist his mother with hiding Jimmy Don's body in the wishing well. The wishing well had been previously built by him and his mother. The next day, Betty Lou put some of Jimmy Don's heart pills in his boat and Robbie took the propeller off. Robbie then took the boat to the lake and set it adrift, and his mother met him there. Robbie did not come forward about the murder until after Betty Lou was arrested. Betty Lou's daughter, Shirley, also knew about the murder before it happened. On the night of August 6th, Betty Lou called Shirley and asked her to come over. While on the phone, Shirley asked her mom if she had done what we had talked about before meaning murdering Jimmy Don. Betty Lou had previously told Shirley she was going to murder Jimmy Don, put his body in his boat, and have Robbie drop him into the lake. When Shirley arrived at her mother's house on August 6, Shirley told her that the problem had been taken care of and she could leave. A few weeks later, Shirley went back to her mother's house, and Betty Lou told her how they had disposed of Jimmy Don's body. Shirley also knew about the murder of Betty Lou's fourth husband, Doyle Wayne Barker. In October 1981, Shirley and her mother were sitting around a campfire when Betty Lou revealed she was going to kill Doyle because she was tired of him beating her and she didn't want him around anymore. Shirley said her mother told her the mobile home was in Doyle's name and if she divorced him, she wouldn't get the house. Three or four days later, Betty Lou was at Shirley's house and said she had taken care of Doyle. Betty Lou said she waited until he went to sleep, got her gun, and covered it with the pillow and pulled the trigger. However, the pillow interfered with the firing pin and didn't go off. After he was going to wake up, she waited a minute before firing again into his head. Afterwards, Shirley went to her mother's house and helped her bury Doyle. They drug him outside and put him in a hole that had already been dug for a barbecue pit. The next day, they bought cinder blocks and built a patio over the spot. Later, a storage shed was put over the patio. In May 1983, Jimmy Don had canceled a life insurance policy through J.C. Penney Life Insurance Company. A form had been included with the monthly bill and was sent back in for a $10,000 policy. The form had been completed without Jimmy Don's knowledge and had the address of one of Betty Lou's daughters. Jimmy Don had a niece who worked for the life insurance company on May 19, 1983, regarding the policy. Document examiners later testified that the signature on the initial application was not Jimmy Don's, but the signature on the cancellation form was his. Betty Lou denied the accusations against her, stating her son, Robbie, had killed Jimmy Don. She said she loved Jimmy Don and no one had ever been as good to her as he was. Betty Luke claimed that on August 5th, 1983, she and Jimmy Don were getting the boat ready for Jimmy Don to take it out the next day to the boat races on the lake. She said they were watching television and getting ready for bed, when Robbie returned from riding his motorcycle. Betty Lou was in the living room and Jimmy Don was in the bedroom, when an argument broke out between Jimmy Don and Robbie. Jimmy Don had been drinking all day and was angry that Robbie had recently quit a job and used Betty Lou's truck while the couple was on vacation. Jimmy Don also accused Robbie of breaking the propeller on his boat during that vacation. Betty Lou said she told Jimmy Don to go to bed and they would discuss it in the morning. But a few minutes later, she heard the two men start arguing loudly. She heard a gunshot and went into the bedroom, where she saw Jimmy Don on the floor, bleeding from the head and mouth. If you have ever wanted to make your home feel safer, there is no better time than now. This week, our friends at Simply Safe are giving true crime fan club listeners early access to all of their Black Friday deals, 50% off their award winning home security. We love Simply Safe because it has everything you need to make your home safe indoor and outdoor cameras, comprehensive sensors, all monitored around the clock by trained professionals who send help the instant you need it. I really enjoy my Simply Safe system because it makes me have a really strong sense of security. And during the holiday season, when we know package thieves are rampant, I get to look on my camera and make sure my packages are safe. Safe was even named the best home security system of 2021 by U.S. News and World Report. These are Safe's biggest discounts of the year. You can get a complete home security system starting at just over $100. There are no long-term contracts or commitments. It's a really easy way to start feeling a bit more peace of mind. So take advantage of Simply Safe's early Black Friday deals and get 50% off your new home security system by visiting simplysafe.com/tcfc. Again, that's simplysafe.com/tcfc for 50% off your entire system. According to Betty Lou, her son told her, Mom, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. Betty Lou told him to go find his brother, and while he was doing that, she thought about what had happened. She said she couldn't help Jimmy Don, so her focus fell on her son, who had just been released from jail on probation following a burglary charge. Although Jimmy Don's remains had been found in a sleeping bag, Betty Lou didn't remember a sleeping bag and said he was buried in a planter, stressing that it wasn't a wishing well. She purchased peat moss to cover the grave the day after he was buried, but contended she was bothered by his presence in the yard, stating she couldn't go outside after dark. She also said she couldn't go on with her life after Jimmy Don's death. However, less than five months after Jimmy Don's death, Betty Lou began seeing Raymond Bone who was living with her in January 1984. Raymond was on parole for manslaughter. The case against Betty Lou began when an informant reported to the lead investigator that he had had sex with Betty Lou in a motel, and after, she allegedly said, quote, We're laying up here fucking and having fun. You wouldn't think it was so funny if you knew that the last son of a bitch I laid up with I buried in the front yard. This man provided the information in exchange for leniency for another crime. After this, investigators contacted another of Betty Lou's daughters, who informed investigators that her brother Robbie had told her that Betty Lou had killed Jimmy Don and buried him in the yard. She also revealed that Betty Lou didn't do it alone. Robbie had assisted. Once Betty Lou was arrested, she was represented by the same attorney who had attempted to assist her with the fire insurance payout in the 2nd Lakehouse fire. Once the trial started, he agreed to represent Betty Lou on contingency, that she sign over her rights to any book or movie rights regarding her case. This attorney never supplied information that he was the one who started looking into the insurance payout for Betty Lou. The attorney was also reportedly seen drinking heavily during the trial, both night and day. Her attorney also failed to introduce Betty Lou's past history of abuse and traumatic brain injury. Of course, Betty Lou was swiftly found guilty, then sentenced to death. One federal judge threw out her conviction based on the conflict of interest of her attorney, but a federal appellate court reaffirmed her conviction and sentence. Betty Lou was born in 1937 to a hard scrabble life in Virginia. Her family lived in a small house in the woods without running water, electricity, or even glass in the windows. When Betty Lou was a small child, the family moved to Newport News for work. The same year they moved, Betty Lou contracted measles and the resultant high fever left her with a hearing impairment. She claimed to have been sexually assaulted by her father and other male family members, beginning at age five. Her father was a violent man who frequently beat Betty Lou and her siblings, particularly when drinking. When she was a young teen, her mother suffered a nervous breakdown and was institutionalized. This left Betty in charge of her younger siblings and the household. When she was fifteen, Betty Lou married for the first time and subsequently had six children. Her first husband beat her frequently and violently, just like her father. Despite this, they were married for 17 years. After they divorced, Betty Lou began drinking heavily. In 1970, she remarried to another drinker and abuser. They divorced just months into their marriage. In 1972, an incident occurred, which is confusing and questionable. Police were called to Betty Lou's house, where they found her second husband in the yard, alive but shot. Their stories conflicted. She said he got jealous when he saw her in a bar with another man, and stormed into her home, so she shot him in self-defense. He said she called him over there and shot him unprovoked. Betty Lou was charged, but a short while later, her second husband signed a sworn affidavit that the events transpired in the manner Betty Lou had stated. They were remarried a short time later. Betty Lou was married to five different men for a total of seven times. She was not tried for the death of Doyle Wayne Baker, who was her fourth husband. Several friends and family members documented that he abused her severely, including just days before his death. In 1980, she was in a serious car accident, which caused a traumatic brain injury. She also suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and battered women syndrome. The state of Texas carried out Betty Lou's execution on February 24, 2000, despite her extenuating circumstances and the question of whether someone else could have pulled the trigger on Jimmy Don Beats. She had no last words nor a final meal request. Betty Lou Beats was a grandmother and great-grandmother at the time of her execution. Jimmy Don Beats was a likable man who tried to help others when possible. He had served in the Army during the Korean War. Upon his discharge, he worked for Coca-Cola for a short time. Before being hired by the Dallas Fire Department, he rose to the ranks to become captain and was with the fire department for 26 years. He planned on retiring at 30 years of service, but was never given the chance to live his dream life of living on the lake and fishing all day. Almost two years after Betty Lou was executed on December 4, 2001, the state of Oklahoma executed Lois Nadine Smith. Lois, frequently called Me Nadine, was convicted of killing her son's ex-girlfriend, Cindy Bailey. On July 4, 1982, Lois, her son Greg, and Teresa Baker picked up Cindy from a Tahlequah, Oklahoma motel. Lois and her son were upset because Cindy had allegedly made threats that she would have Greg killed. As they drove away, Lois began questioning Cindy about the rumors that she had put a hit out on Greg. After Cindy denied these rumors, Lois choked her and then stabbed her in the throat with a knife in Cindy's purse. They drove her to Greg's father's house in Gans. His father and stepmother were home, but his stepmother left shortly after the group arrived. Lois forced Cindy to sit in a recliner where she taunted her, threatening to kill her. She fired a shot into the recliner near Cindy's head, then fired several more shots at Cindy, who fell to the floor, wounded. Greg reloaded the pistol, while Lois laughed and jumped on Cindy's neck. Lois then took the pistol again and fired four more shots into Cindy. The autopsy later revealed that Cindy had been shot five times in the chest, two in the head, and once in the back. Five of those shots were fatal, and the knife wound was also likely fatal. Lois and Greg were arrested within days of the murder and held without bond. Lois went on trial in December of the same year. She testified for herself that Teresa Baker, who was in a relationship with Greg, had pulled the trigger and killed Cindy. However, a forensic blood spatter expert testified that the bloodstains on Lois's blouse proved that she was the one who fired the fatal shots. There was also testimony that she pointed the gun at her ex-husband, James, at one point, telling him to get back into the bathroom. This act was another aggravating circumstance that led to a capital charge. The other aggravating circumstance was that Lois tortured Cindy before murdering her. Teresa Baker was the state's primary witness in the case against Lois Smith. Lois was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. Her son was given life in prison. Lois had the distinct notoriety of being the first woman on Oklahoma death row. She was the only one for a while, before being joined by Wanda Allen. At the time of Lois's execution, she was again the only woman on death row. Not much is known of Lois, other than she was a model citizen before she committed the heinous murder of Cindy Bailey. She was also a model prisoner. She had become a heavy drinker and, in the days prior to the murder, had several sleepless nights. Additionally, her ex-husband was a heavy drinker and abused her. She was not ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. These final actions were highlighted by anti-death penalty groups. Cindy did have a small daughter at the time of her death. This daughter witnessed Lois's execution and stated, You do something of this magnitude, torturing somebody. You're going to have to pay the price for it. She chose her path in life. Lois had four attorneys and a spiritual advisor present as her witnesses. Her last meal was barbecue ribs, onion rings, strawberry banana cake, and a cherry limeade. Her last words were gratitude to her attorneys and then to the families. I want to say I'm sorry for the pain and loss I've caused you. I ask that you forgive me. You must forgive to be forgiven. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, but let's not forget I'm still locked out. And of course, our website is True Crime Fan Club.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com.